Or you guys can open to Genesis 13. That's where we'll be this morning. While you're turning there, I just wanted to remind you that there's a couple things going on and coming up in the next couple weeks here at Grace Bible Church that we're excited about. The first is, is up on the board, our Grace 360 conference. It's our annual discipleship conference. It is this Saturday. So this coming Saturday, 9 a.m. to noon, over at the Anderson campus, a number of of the pastors here at the church, myself included, as well as leaders in our community, are going to gather together to teach you guys, to, to walk you through theology, leadership skills, life application, to help you grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. The conference is free. There's a lot of different workshops. You can pick and choose when you get there. We would love for you to go on our website and register so we have a sense of how many copies to make. We can prepare for you guys, but really excited to meet with you on Saturday for our annual conference. Second thing to let you know about, uh, here at the beginning of the spring semester, this is a great time if you are not already connected here with the family at Grace Bible Church. This is the time to do it. Sunday mornings, we love having you here, but I think almost all of us in leadership here at the church would say, as much as we love you coming on Sunday mornings, this isn't where discipleship happens. This is too big a group to really grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. You need a smaller community to, to bond with, to hold you accountable, Accountable to encourage you, to lead you into the scriptures and into prayer. So we want everyone here to get connected into some group here at the church. We've listed them out on this, this handout that says get connected. It lists all of the different options. We have options for every stage, for every uh, period in your life, for every night of the week, whatever works for you. You can register for any of them on our website. So just go online and get connected here at Grace so that you can grow as a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ this spring. All right, as we think about Genesis 13 and 14 today, let me ask you, have you ever been in a group of people and all of a sudden someone used a word that you did not know? Word, maybe you never heard it before, you heard it, but no one had defined it for you. You don't know this word and people start dropping it. You don't know what it means, but you don't want to ask because everyone else seems to know what that word means and you don't want to look like a fool. You want to fit in. So you just play along. Maybe you drop the word here and there just hoping that you got lucky and it fit in. Um, that happened to me about 10 years ago when Julie and I were, were buying our first house. I was on the phone talking to our loan officer, the guy I'm asking for a lot of money from, and he drops this word in the conversation that I'd never heard before, the word escrow. I I don't have any idea what escrow means. He thinks I do. All I can figure out is it's going to cost me a lot of money, but I I don't want to ask him to define the word because I don't want to look like a fool in front of the guy who I'm asking for a lot of money. So I just played along. I dropped it in here and there. I just pretended that I knew what I was doing. Now, for those of you who have not bought a house, I don't recommend that you approach a contract that way. You should ask for them to clarify every word. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to look like a fool, so I just played along. I think that's what we do all the time in church. We hear words at church that that we don't really understand. We don't know what they mean, but everyone else seems to know, but we're not going to ask because we don't want to look like a fool. We don't want to look like the new kid coming to the table. We want to look like we fit in. So we don't ask for anyone to define these crucial terms that are at the foundation of our faith. And I think that is true of the word worship. 
Worship is a word you hear all the time at church. This is the worship service. We just heard worship music from the worship band. You hear this word worship all the time. We use it all the time. And yet many of us don't understand what it means. We don't have a a clear sense of the meaning of the word worship. How do I know? Well, I, I can tell that we don't understand worship because for most of us, we have allowed that word worship to become synonymous with the music played by a band on a stage like this. Well, that that's not that's not worship. That's way too small for the biblical understanding of worship. That is just a tiny sliver of what the Bible means by worship. For so many of us, we do not understand the meaning of worship. And so this morning, what I want to do for you is I want to give you a bigger definition of worship. I want to give you a grander sense of what the Bible means by worship. I want to help you understand the meaning of worship so then I can show you the power of worship. I want to help you see from Abraham's life that worship accurately defined is the key to victory in your life. All of the great spiritual battles that you face are solved through worship. So we're going to look at the meaning of worship and the power of worship, both from Abraham's life. In chapters 13 and 14, these are really good chapters for Abraham. He does great in these chapters. So let's jump in. Let's start with the meaning of worship. Let's look at Abraham to understand what this word means. I've got to review for just a moment who is Abraham. We met him back at the end of chapter 11. When God called him to leave his idolatrous family, his idolatrous nation, and go to the promised land, the land of Canaan, where God would bless him and make him into a mighty nation. And and after kind of a stumbling start, Abraham finally obeys. He goes to Canaan, but he finds a famine in the land. There's a drought. There's not enough food. And Abraham gets afraid. And so despite God's command, Abraham runs away to Egypt. And in Egypt, he does some really bad things, makes some horrible decisions. God has to step in and rescue him. That's where we left off in our last Abraham sermon. At the end of chapter 12, Abraham totally blows it. Huge failure in his life. So as we enter into chapter 13, Abraham needs a fresh start. He needs to turn the page on his failures and restart with the Lord. Well, how do you find a fresh start in life? Through worship. Look at chapter 13. Let's start in verse 3. He, that is Abraham, went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abraham gets his fresh start. He turns the page on his sins by turning to the Lord in worship, and he does two things here. It's interesting when you look at Abraham's worship. There's no singing, you know, it's no band, no stage. Two things that Abraham does. First of all, he builds an altar builds an altar. Now, an altar later in the Old Testament will become a place where they sacrifice animals. But at this point in Scripture, it wasn't. At this point in Scripture, an altar was just a a monument or a memorial that someone built. It would be like the bonfire memorial on campus. 
Why did A&M build the Bonfire Memorial? Well, to, to commemorate those who died, to show our love and respect for them. That's what Abraham is doing. He is showing his love and respect for God by building this altar. It was a public display of Abraham's love for God. So Abraham worshipped through deeds, through this hard work of building an altar. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing that he builds. So he worships in deeds. Second part of his worship, he worships in words. He calls on the name of the Lord. He calls out, he declares the name of the Lord. Now that phrase needs a little explanation. In the ancient world, names weren't like they are today. Today, our name is just a way of getting our attention. It's an identifier. So you can call out Blake in a public place, and I'll turn and look at you. But, but the word Blake, it doesn't mean anything. Well, in the ancient world, names were different. Your name was actually a summary of who you were and all that you had done. So your name was was meaningful. So when it says that Abraham called on the name of the Lord, what it's saying is that Abraham is publicly declaring or proclaiming who God is and what God has done. Calling on the name of the Lord. It means that Abraham is is declaring to anyone who will listen how great God is, how faithful he is, how loving he is, how gracious he is, how good he is, how wise he is. Abraham is declaring the, the worth, the value of God. That's what the phrase means. It's actually what the word means in English. I don't know if you knew where that word came from, worship. Actually, in Old English, it was worth-ship. It meant to, to uh, declare or to connect worth or value to an object. You are ascribing value to something. That's what worship is. You are publicly ascribing worth to God. You are saying to God, to yourself and to other people, how valuable God is, that he is infinitely worthy to you. That's what worship is. It is declaring the worth of God through your words and your deeds to God, to yourself, and to others. So looking at Abraham's life, we now have a simple but huge, extensive, broad definition of worship. Worship is simply proclaiming the greatness of God through words and deeds. So singing on Sunday morning, that is far too small of a definition of worship. That's just one form of worship. But worship isn't just limited to Sunday mornings when we gather together and sing. Worship is so much bigger than that. It's so much grander than that. It's any thought, any word, any deed that displays or proclaims the worth, the value of God. It's interesting, if you read the book of Psalms, a book that is all about worship, you will see a a whole host of different verbs used for worship. It's really interesting. Just go through and read some psalms and you'll see the psalmist use words like sing, shout, speak, tell, proclaim, rejoice, exalt, give thanks, praise, be glad, call upon, come near, bow down, kneel, bring an offering, serve, remember, meditate. All of these words for worship. Worship is so much broader than just singing. It is any thought, any emotion, any speech, any deed, any body posture that declares the worth, the value, the greatness of God. 
So now we have a, a sense of the meaning of worship. It's proclaiming the greatness of God through words and deeds. So practically speaking, let's talk about how we worship God in our day-to-day life. What are some ways that we worship? We don't build altars. That's not really our style of worship in the new covenant age. What do we do? Well, we worship when we gather together as a community to sing praises to God on Sunday mornings or Tuesday nights at breakaway. This is worship, one form of worship. But you don't have to be in a group to worship. You also worship whenever you listen to a a praise CD or a worship album. If you're listening actively, if you're letting it engage your mind and your emotions, that also is worship. But worship is not confined to, to your thoughts or to your words. Let me list some of these out. It's not confined to your thoughts and to your words. You worship when you pray a psalm to God. When you take his word and pray it back to him, that also is worship. Worship is also in your deeds. You are worshiping God when you serve your neighbor, when you go mow his lawn and tell him it's because you love Jesus. That deed is worship. You are proclaiming the greatness of God to him. You worship when you give money sacrificially to a fellow student in need and tell her it's because you love Jesus. That is worship. You are proclaiming through your deeds the greatness and worth of God. So worship is so much more than just singing on Sunday morning. It is any thought, word, or deed that declares to ourselves, to God, or to the watching world that God is worthy, that God is great. Worship, it's incredibly broad. It's seven days a week, 365 days a year. Now that you have a sense of the the broadness of worship, of the meaning of worship, now I want to show you the power of of worship. I want to show you why worship is important. Why it's worthy of your time and effort and attention. Why does worship matter? I'm going to give you just one answer. There's actually a lot of answers given throughout scripture of why you should spend time in worship. We're just going to look at one answer today that's given in Genesis 13 and 14. That answer is because why should you spend time in worship? Because it is powerful. Worship is powerful. What I want to help you understand is that worship is the key to overcoming the great struggles you face in life. Worship is how you win the great victories in your life that matter. Worship is fundamental to living a life of spiritual victory. If you want to overcome addictions in your life, if you want to get past bad habits, if you want to conquer addictions and heal broken relationships and make this world a better place, worship is the key. Worship is how you live the life that God has called you to live. Worship is how you overcome the struggles in your life. Let's see that through Abraham's example. Let's see how worship was powerful in his life. So beginning of chapter 13, verse 4, Abraham worships God, and that worship sets him up to succeed in his first great test of this section of the book, his great test in chapter 13. Abraham is going to be challenged to surrender his rights. Surrender his rights. Look with me starting in verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Okay, so let's set this up. God's blessing, his prosperity, has created an opportunity for conflict between Abraham and Lot. 
They're both very wealthy. The land is not big enough to sustain both of them, so they must separate. They must go their separate ways. Now, let me ask you, who among these two men has the right to choose the better piece of land? Abraham. Clearly, Abraham. First of all, because Abraham is older. Abraham is the uncle. Lot is the nephew. Abraham is the leader and elder of the household. And and age, seniority, gives you certain rights. When Luke and Gracie are fighting over a toy, sometimes Gracie will remind Luke that she is the elder sibling. Now, actually, only by one minute. She was out 60 seconds before him. But in Gracie's mind, those 60 seconds are everything. She's never going to let him forget it because in her mind, seniority gives her her right to have her way. So Abraham, he's got rights to the best because he's got age. He's got seniority, but he also has the right to the best land because God's promise was made with Abraham, not with Lot. The only reason that Lot is wealthy is because he's riding on Abraham's coattails. Everything good that's come to Lot has come through Abraham. So what should Lot have done when all of this strife began? Lot should have left. Lot should have done whatever was necessary to stay in Abraham's good graces. It's an insult that he's allowed this conflict to grow. It would be fully within Abraham's rights to tell Lot to take a hike. That would be Abraham's right. So how shocking it is when Abraham does the opposite. He does the exact opposite. Rather than demand his rights, Abraham surrenders his rights. Look at verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If if to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Abraham defers to Lot. He, He surrenders his right to the best land and gives it generously, graciously to Lot. And what does Lot do? Well, he takes advantage of his uncle's generosity. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Lot takes the best land. He takes the valley that was watered by rivers and springs. It was fertile. It was lush. It was like Eden. He takes the best land, and that leaves Abraham with the the hill country of Judea, which uh, is kind of like the hill country of Texas. It's not well irrigated. It's hard to live there. You are absolutely dependent on God sending rain. If God doesn't send rain, your cattle will die. Abraham knew that Lot was going to do this. He knew that Lot was immature, selfish, and materialistic. He knew that if he gave Lot the right to pick, Lot would take the best. Abraham didn't care. He didn't care that his nephew would take advantage of him. He generously surrendered his rights. He won an incredible victory over selfishness. How? Through worship. It was that worship back at the beginning of the chapter that enabled Abraham to surrender his rights to to generously give to his nephew. You see, it was worship that reminded Abraham that God had promised to take care of him. It was worship that reminded Abraham that, that, yeah, the hill country is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to live in. You're going to need the rain. You can't control the rain, but God does. 
It was worship that reminded Abraham, God controls all things. He has promised to take care of you. It was worship that that allowed Abraham to open his hands and give generously to Lot. It's worship that empowers us to surrender our rights. That's how worship works. It reminds us that God has promised to take care of us. It reminds us that we can trust God to meet all of our needs. Worship enables us to care for other people. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. You see, in the course of my day-to-day life, I will always be preoccupied with myself if I don't worship. All I'm going to think about is my rights, my desires, my needs, my stuff. I can't give that stuff to you. I can't surrender my rights, my desires to you until I stop and spend time in worship because worship breaks my otherwise unbreakable preoccupation with myself. It frees me so that I don't have to keep looking at myself and can look to other people. That's what enabled Abraham to win this incredible victory over selfishness. He spent time in worship. Worship is how you will win victories over selfishness, pride, bitterness, all the things that keep you from loving other people well. Worship sets you free to love well. Let me give you an example of how worship empowers us to love. If you have been married for any length of time, you know how difficult it is to surrender your rights and your desires to your spouse, not one time, but day after day after day. And yet that's what marriage demands. That's what God has called us to do, to die to self day after day after day after day until death do you part. That's why marriage is hard. That's why you should not enter it lightly. Marriage is serious. It demands everything from you. So this is what I have found in my marriage. The only way that I am going to love Julie as God has called me to love her, to, to love her selflessly day after day, is if I regularly spend time in worship. Because it is worship that reminds me how blessed I am by God. It's worship that reminds me I don't need anything from Julie. I have everything I need from God and then some. It's worship that breaks my preoccupation with myself and allows me to open my hands. I don't have to take. I don't have to cling. I can give unconditionally to her. If you want to build a strong marriage, it begins in worship. Begins in worship. Worship breaks your preoccupation with yourself and allows you to unconditionally love others. Worship makes you generous. So it is through worship that Abraham wins this first great victory in his life, overcomes this test that he faced. It is worship that will help him to overcome test number two. Test number one, he had to surrender his rights. Test number two, he has to conquer his enemies. Let's set it up by actually reading the last verse in chapter three. After this great victory over selfishness, verse 18, then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So after this first great victory, Abraham goes back to his regular habit of worship, and it is worship that empowers him to win the victory in chapter 14, when he faces these great enemies. So look with me, chapter 14, let's pick it up in verse 1. 
And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Eleazar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goliam, that they made war with Barak, king of Sodom, with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shem, Shembur, king of Zeboam, and king of Bela, that is Zor. Man, those are hard names, really hard names. Let me put this on a map so you have an idea of what's going on here. Here's the world in Abraham's day. The four kings of verse 1 ruled these four kingdoms. They're the big boys. They're the power players of the day. They ruled that whole part of the world, all of the green, all the way down to the promised land. All of Canaan belonged to these big four kings. Now, these big four kings, as kings in the ancient world do, uh, they exacted tribute or tax from all the smaller kings in their kingdom. Among those smaller kings were the five little kings of verse 2. Verse 2 lists five little kings that ruled this little area down here to the south. They had to pay taxes year after year. They got tired of that. And so at some point, they rebelled. They gathered an army to rebel against the big four. Big four did not like that, so they united together, joined their armies, and marched south for war. So that's the setup. We have four mighty kings going to battle against five lesser kings. Sadly for the five, the rebellion doesn't go well. Look at verse 8. The king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they, that is the big four kings, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So the big four kings, they win. They win completely. They decimate the, re- the rebel army, and in an act of revenge after winning this battle, they turn around and they pillage every city of the rebel kings. They take all the possessions, all the wealth, uh, and all the people to be slaves, and that includes Sodom, where Abraham's nephew Lot lives. So now Lot is a captive of these conquering kings. Once again, Lot becomes an opportunity for Abraham to be tested. Okay, so that's what has happened. Now Abraham finds out this bad news in verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. So Abraham hears about what has happened. He hears that these four mighty kings have decimated every army they have faced. They have destroyed every city they've marched through. So Abraham is sad about Lot, but he's not really in any position, humanly speaking, to do anything for Lot. Because Abraham's not a king. And Abraham doesn't have an army. And those four kings, they have a massive, mighty, unconquerable army. So Abraham is in no position to help Lot. It would be reasonable for Abraham to sit at home and be sad. But that's not what Abraham does. Because Abraham has been walking in worship. He knows that he is not strong enough to go defeat four mighty kings with a huge united army. But he knows that his God is strong enough. And he knows that God had promised back in chapter 12 to to curse those who curse you. Well, those four kings, they had cursed Abraham. Clearly, they'd taken his nephew as a slave. Abraham knew, well, it's time for God to show up. 
It's time for the curse to come upon them. Abraham believed that God would fulfill his word. And so look at what Abraham does. Verse 14, when Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Abraham gathers an army of 318. Tiny, puny little army. How are you going to stand up against tens of thousands of trained soldiers? He goes out and God fulfills his promise. Abraham wipes the floor with these four unconquerable kings. He decimates their army, takes back all of the plunder, rescues Lot, wins an incredible victory against impossible odds. How? Through worship. It was worship that convinced Abraham that God would deliver him. Worship was the reason that Abraham won. This victory wasn't won in chapter 14. It was won back in chapter 13, verse 18, when Abraham spent time in worship. Worship is the reason he could be brave. Worship is the reason for his military victory. And what that teaches us, what that reveals to us, is that worship enables us to overcome impossible odds. Worship enables you to do things that you thought were impossible. Worship is powerful. Worship overcomes impossible odds. I want to give you a couple examples as you think about your life. If you have an addiction in your life, an addiction that is just tearing you apart, humanly speaking, you can't see any way to overcome this addiction. It is just owning you. I want you to know that through worship, there is hope. There is hope to overcome any addiction through worship. Timothy Keller puts it this way. The secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it, moved to tears and moved to laughter, moved by who God is and what he has done for you. There is no addiction, no habit, no enslaving sin that can master you if you will choose to turn to God and worship. Now, practically speaking, worship is probably only the first step in your recovery from addiction. You will probably need counseling. You may need medical help. You may need to attend Celebrate Recovery. There are a lot of steps that you may need to take, but worship is step number one. For a follower of Christ, there is no addiction that you cannot overcome if you will walk in worship. Second example, if there is a relationship in your life that is on the rocks, a relationship that is full of pain and strife, and you cannot see how things could possibly get better, there is hope through worship. Worship is what God can use to heal that relationship. Even if you're the only one looking to fix the relationship, worship is the key. Now, Again, it's probably only the first step. You may need counseling. You may need to read books. You may need to make changes to your life. But worship is the first step because it's worship that connects you to God's infinite power to heal. And it is worship that breaks you free of your selfishness so you can love the other person unconditionally. Worship is the key to winning all of the battles that really matter in life. 
Worship taps you into God's infinite power and enables you to overcome all of your sins, all of your enemies, all of your bad habits, all of the bad stuff in your past. Abuse, failure, loneliness, anxiety, depression, financial failure, health crises, all of these are conquerable through worship. Worship is the key to living a life of spiritual victory. That's what Abraham's life proves to us. So let's bring this home. Let's talk about how to apply this to our life. I want to challenge you as we enter 2014 to make worship a habit. Make it a habit. If you want to win great victories in your life for the Lord, you must worship. But as we look at the worship of Abraham, we notice he didn't just do it once. Worship was his regular pattern in life. It was a habit for Abraham. That habit connected him to God's infinite power. So this year, let's build a habit of worship in our lives. Let me give you a few practical examples, ways that that you can begin to build worship into a habit that will bring victory into your life. First example, this is number one on my list because it's number one in my life. This is the primary way that I practice worship. I worship through a psalm in the morning. I'll wake up and spend 10 or 15 minutes. Now, I'll I'll read different parts of the Bible, but for me, almost every day comes back to a psalm, and I'll just go through the book over and over again. I'll take one psalm, and I'll read it all the way through. So read it real quick, and then I'll go back and take each verse and turn it into a statement of praise or thanksgiving to God. So you just go back. Each verse, you just say it to God as worship. I'll give you an example. Uh, Here's a fun one from Psalm 98.2. The verse says, The Lord's made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nation. So that's easy to, to turn back into a declaration of praise. You just say to the Lord, God, you are righteous. All that you do is right and good. There is no taint of sin with you. There is not even a little bit of corruption. God, how unlike me you are because I am full of sin. God, I sin every day, so thank you that you've made known your salvation. Not only did you provide salvation, but you revealed it to me. You didn't leave me in the dark. You gave me godly parents who who told me about the gospel at a young age. God, you have been so good to me. Just take each verse, turn it as a statement of praise to God. Takes you 10 minutes in the morning. That fuels worship for me, so that's my primary one. But let me give you a few other examples in case that's not the one that works for you. Second example, memorize a passage of worship. So some passage of scripture that is uh, about worship, memorize it and then repeat it to yourself. Use that as as the fuel for your worship. Obviously, those are concentrated in the book of Psalms all the way through. That one's real easy. I like Psalm 23. That's my favorite. Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Uh, You'll find them, though, throughout the Old Testament, actually, particularly in the Psalms. Uh, For example, the book of Isaiah, like Isaiah 40, really good uh, worship song or song of praise to God. You'll find them in the New Testament as well, particularly the epistles of Paul. Philippians 2 is My favorite, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. You memorize that and you just repeat that to yourself. It becomes fuel for worship in your life. So second idea, you memorize a a passage of worship. Third idea, spend time observing nature. One of the great tragedies of the modern world is that we have built a cocoon around ourselves of man-made devices. 
You wake up in the morning in your man-made house. Then you get in your man-made car and you drive on a man-made road surrounded by man-made buildings. You get to your man-made office and you spend all day in front of your man-made computer. It's not long before the only connection you have with God's creation is the nature wallpaper on your computer monitor. That's (laughs) the most access you have. That's a tragedy. For most of human history, humanity enjoyed unfettered access to God's creation. They were not surrounded by their own devices. They saw the grandeur of what God had made every day, and that fueled their worship. They saw the glory of God in every field, in every valley, in every creature, in every sunset. I encourage you to to recover at least a little bit of that connection with creation. So please, go, go sit in your backyard sometimes. Go walk in a park. Go hike through the woods. Spend a little bit of time seeing and observing what God has made, enjoying the world that he has made. And as you look at creation, as you enjoy creation, remember, God made all of that for you. That's what the world is for, for you, his gift to you, to show you how good and loving and wise and powerful he is. So please, spend a little time observing nature out in creation, letting it empower and inspire your worship. Fourth idea, listen to a worship album. Ross King's As Hope Will Guide Me, my current favorite. There are many others out there. This one happens to pass all of my theological grids, so I really love it. Pick a good worship album and spend time actively listening to it. So don't just let it play in the background, although that's not bad, but actively listen to it. Listen to the words. Think about the words. Let them engage your emotions. Take each stanza of the song and offer it to God in praise. Fifth idea, practical suggestion. You can do this as a group. Practice Thanksgiving with your roommates or your family. This one is really easy. Just at the end of the day, when you're all back together, get in the habit of asking each other a question that will lead you to worship. So maybe every member of the family goes around and answers the question, what are you thankful for from today? Or maybe it's, uh, where did you see God's grace today? Or where did you see God's glory today? Just a simple question. You just go around and ask each other, and it builds within your family or within your, with your roommates a habit of worship. There's a lot of ideas there. Don't try to practice all of them. If you try to do them all, you'll do none. So just pick one. Pick one to begin practicing regularly this week, either for the first time or the first time in a long time. If you will do it regularly, day after day, it will grow into a habit that will build a habit of worship in your life and help you to overcome the great struggles and trials you face this coming year. I want to encourage you to build a habit of worship. To that end, I want us to end with spending some time in worship, but not in the typical way. Not going to have the band come back up here and sing. We're going to worship in a different way. We're going to worship through prayer and reflection. We're going to go as a group before the Lord and we're going to spend some time in prayer recalling to God, declaring to God how thankful we are for who he is and what he has done. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, that worship is in a sense very easy because you are so great. It is not hard for us to find reasons to declare your greatness. Lord, you are infinite. You are all-powerful. You are almighty. You are perfect in every way. You are a God who, who does all things right. 
You are a God who who has chosen to love us and Lord, we are so thankful for that because we are so unworthy of that. You are worthy, but we are not. We are sinners. We deserve justice. We deserve punishment. And yet in grace, you have forgiven us. We thank you, God, for your mercy. We thank you for your compassionate love to us. And we thank you, Lord, that that forgiveness, that love, that it cost you your own son, We thank you and praise you that you sent Jesus Christ, the almighty son of God. He emptied himself. He humbled himself and became one of us. He walked among us and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We praise him and exalt him that he died in our place for our sins. We are not worthy of that. We thank you, God, that you offer the merits of his death, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. You offer it to us as an absolutely free gift. Thank you, God, that you do not make us work for your love. Thank you that it is a free gift that we receive simply in faith, simply saying, yes, we want it. God, I praise you and thank you that you have so richly blessed us. And now I'm going to give you a moment, just this time of silence for a moment to go before God and I want you to thank God for your testimony, for how he revealed his son to you, for how he saved you from the penalty of your sins. Just spend this moment offering thanks to God. Lord, we praise you and thank you. That every moment of every day is full of displays of your power and your grace. We thank you for your goodness in our lives. But Father, we come before you and ask you to open our eyes to see. Let us see all of the good. Let us see all of the grace from you in our lives. We pray, Father, that we would see what you are doing in us and that we would respond in worship. Father, we need your help to grow in worship. We are so busy. We are so easily distracted. We are so easily preoccupied with ourselves. We pray, break our eyes off of ourselves and help us to see you. Help us to worship you, to thank you, to praise you every moment of every day. We pray that we would live lives of worship. We pray that that worship would unleash great victories in our lives, that you would give us power and strength over sin and Satan and temptation and addiction. We pray that we would walk faithfully with you through the power of worship. Thank you for how great you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for making it possible for us to walk with you through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. We'll be in Genesis 15 next week.